This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Weighing Payoffs. What Just Happened. QAnon. And Herbie Brennan. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. Uh, and in the gaming hut, we've got the miniatures set up, we've got the Doritos poured, we got the dice rolling... Robin, what if there's no battle, no natural 20, and no nacho cheese flavor? Wouldn't that be terrible? Just as in a game, you need to have payoff in these things. And since we're not talking about uh, nacho cheese, but are talking about games, Robin, how much do we worry about payoff in narrative as opposed to fun around the table? And is everything in the scenario written perhaps by a hardworking and uh, physically attractive game designer? Shouldn't that get to the table, or is that a priority? What's going on when we think about, I guess, the final act, the the, the tie-up, the story, the ending? Right, and and specifically how much you as a game master should worry about narrative coherence. Right. So, for example, if you uh, set something up at the beginning where uh, one of the possible threads of the uh, scenario is that you see a ghost, and later on you can then... Uh, realize that, oh, wait, if I go back to the tree where I saw the ghost, we we can talk to the ghost, and maybe the ghost will then talk to the main bad guy, and uh, that can be a possible resolution to the story. So the GM has placed this thing early on, and particularly in narrative, right? The whole Chekhov's gun maxim is about if you Mm -hmm. put a gun in the desk drawer in Act 1, you're creating an expectation that it will be fired in Act 3. And does the Chekhov's gun maxim apply to role-playing games, and you might sense that since I'm putting these as a series of questions, and that if a headline ever poses something as a question, that means the answer is, Ken... The answer is no, Robin. The answer is no, that you do not have to worry that much, uh, and we're going to spend the rest of the segment uh, talking about uh, why. And so the, the first reason, I would say, is if if you have a cool scene with a ghost at the beginning that could lead somewhere and then doesn't, does that matter if everybody at the table thinks they had a great time? And again, the answer is no, because you ultimately, what happens during play is what matters. And that matters even more than if people talk about it afterwards and sort of kind of talk themselves out of liking it, uh, which I've seen some players do as their uh, sort of rational controlling minds take over. Uh, but that's less likely to happen in this particular instance because the other side of that is that thought elements that don't pay off are the inevitable consequence of player choice, right? You put a bunch of, there's not just a Chekhov's gun, but there's a gun and a banana and a stuffed gorilla, and whichever one they decide to make important is the one that has to pay off at the beginning, and it doesn't matter which of the three they decided to handle first or or handle early on, and I would suggest that that is uh, one of the main narrative differences between 
uh, role-playing and traditional non-interactive media is that we do not expect coherence from it because we value choice. Right. The difference that people, I think, are struggling with or dealing with or whatever is the difference between a purely narrative art form, like a novel, and a purely experienced art form, like, say, a painting. And, of course, paintings can tell stories and novels can go nowhere, get off my back. The the role-playing experience has been compared uh, by people who play and listen to jazz more than I do to jazz, and I think that that's apt because... Although the, the there is, you know, musical pro- progression, themes are laid down and picked up, things happen in sequence, it is not like a symphony where there is a, a controlling narrative musically that runs through the whole thing. It's about what are you doing in the moment? How is that informed by what just happened? What are you setting up? What are you feeling? It, it's, it's, a, it's much closer to an experiential as opposed to a narrative art form. And certainly in, uh, you know, at the table, it's much closer to just helling around than it is to everyone settling down and uh, writing a screenplay together. Right. Right. And this is something that I think the issue is something you will consider more for a one shot where you don't have an option to go, well, that scene with that ghost, eventually they might ask about it again, which is something that might happen in, a, in an ongoing game. And you can just say to yourself, well, at any time they can go back to that tree at night and talk to the ghost, and then I will find something else for the ghost to say, since they found another way to deal with the antagonist of that particular scenario. But if they choose to reactivate any of those threads, uh, they can do so. And so if it's in a sort of a more sandboxy or player-directed game, you start the session off by going, well, here's these five unresolved things. Do you want to deal with any of them? That gives the players the option to go back and then eventually... If they care, the ghost pays off. If they don't care, they don't care. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. Prob- problem solved. So I guess what I'm also groping toward is the question of how much you as the game master are going to try and nudge things toward a sense of coherence that you find in another narrative form that no one actually wants. And as always, uh, whether you're nudging or forcing if you're pulling the story in a particular direction that you have in, in your head uh, beforehand that none of the players are interested in, that is uh, doing no one any favors, uh, including you, because you're probably having a frustrating time spending a lot of extra energy making this thing happen that nobody's invested in. Yeah, and you do have to sort of keep the distinction in your mind between pulling, which I think we both agree is wrong, I think nudging can be acceptable in one or two scenarios. For example, let's say you're doing a gumshoe scenario where there is a mystery. You can quite often nudge players to get back to solving it uh, because they will be goofing around with the candy store owner or lost completely up their own butt somewhere. Uh, I don't think their nudging is out of, uh, is out of uh, court in those sorts of things. And just reminding the players may legitimately have forgotten about the ghost because you saw the ghost two weeks ago and now they're all distracted by the, you know, the, 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 the haunted bell or whatever. And if remember there was a ghost, uh, you can do ghost callbacks or out of character, remind the players, uh, this seems to be the list of threads that you've dropped. One of them was that ghost. And, you know, as you said, stuff you do out of character is also different in affect, uh, from stuff you do in character. If at the beginning of the game, before everyone gets their character sheets out, you say, I would really like you to take the city today so that we can go on with this uh, campaign. So just keep that in mind that when you're having your argument about whether to settle down for a long siege, I would like you to take the city. And then the players can in character come up with reasons that rather than settle down for a long siege, they would storm the gates immediately and uh, good fun is had by all. And you can use all those guards you statted out and you don't have to sit there and roll for, you know, typhus or whatever you were going to do in a siege game. So I think that out of character nudging is different from in character trying to, you know, channel or force and uh, having guys with guns show up and force them to the tree to talk to the ghost. Right. Exactly. Or, or during the scenario, just making every plot thread lead back around to that ghost. Uh, I think that's a different thing. The closing off of narrative options within play is generally frowned on and almost always uh, less fun at the table than what the players wanted to be doing. So, you know, a give and take 
is 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 core to, to to GMing and this sort of thing as with everything else. But again, sometimes scenarios have endings and you have to get there, right? Right. And if you are really uh, hot to get that ghost back in there, you might ask yourself, why didn't they choose to interact with the ghost? You know, did you have it manifest to only one person in the group and that character is not one who is forthcoming about their ghost encounters? Uh, did you just fail to make it seem interesting? Did you not, you know, make the, the, the big arrow overhead that says this is a, a clue that will lead you elsewhere? Did you not give them enough information? And so the other thing to do then is to ask if I wanted them to be engaged with this and bring it back into the narrative, why did I fail to do that? Why, why weren't they interested? And it might, uh, the answer to that will uh, imply whether you should bring the ghost back or whether uh, it's not just worth the effort. So if it's something where you didn't do enough to make it interesting to them, that's one thing. If they were just way more interested in this other thing that they actively want to do, uh, that's where you follow their lead. And uh, the other option is one where I, I can still, you know, make this ghost interesting. I had cool ideas, but I didn't make them seem cool in the moment. So when I take another whack at it, here's what I'm going to do to make sure that uh, the first ghost encounter will th- seem like it's setting up this thing here that's paying off now that is interesting and engaging and will succeed in hooking them with the way the previous scene did. What if it's the ghost of the main character's father and it says it was murdered? That'd be interesting, says the GM of um, uh, Bernardo and his buddy. Yeah. Well, uh, once we're inviting a ghost to show up and reveal things, I think that's always a pretty good sign that it's time to get out of this hut, let them haunt an empty hut, move on to a new, fresh, unhaunted hut. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves the threats of malice the drow fort and the four kingdoms of the mechanical sun forgotten gods the gnome academy of magic monsters magic treasure and more for a limited time get 10 percent off in print or pdf at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. It's time to reopen that formerly a relatively frequent hut, uh, one that, uh, with one recent exception, has gone dusty and moldering. Uh, because of our 10-day lead time on the podcast, and that's the <laughs> Politics Hut. And we're recording this on uh, November 10th. A bunch of weird stuff is probably going to happen uh, in the next 10 days before this episode drops. I think we can be sure of that. But uh, we can also be sure that uh, the United States has a new president-elect, and uh, we can look back on uh, the last uh, four years as having uh, some sort of a definitive conclusion. So can what are our, our, our big takeaways from uh, this story that uh, up until this particular moment has been too fast moving for us to really cover on the show? Well, I mean, I guess the the first takeaway is that it ended in every sense, as far as I'm concerned, beautifully. We had one of my favorite presidential elections, top five easily, because uh, while uh, we have a new president whose middle name is Robinette, which is just fun by itself. Um, we also have a better than even chance of a Republican Senate. Republicans gained 10 to a dozen new seats in the House. They gained seats in state legislatures. They're going to get to do all the redistricting in 2020. As far as I'm concerned, a bank shot that, that worked. Happy days are here again. And then, of course, we have the delight that is four seasons total landscaping. <laughs> 
<laughs> Armando Iannucci was called out of retirement to script one last beautiful moment of the of the of the TV show we've all been helplessly watching for four years, and boy did he nail it. Um, you can't ask for a better ending. You know, we we had the tragedy and the farce just right there, all in one. Screw you, Marks. Uh, try and come up with a story arc like that's going to happen. Yeah. So I mean, the the takeaway is that by and large, all of the uh, perfervid Reichstag fire nightmares turned out to be you know, LARPing of one or another sort. There was a great deal of LARPing during this administration, I think, by everyone concerned. And uh, now, you know, it may or may not be a good thing for the uh, future, but at least the present is 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 on its own two feet again. And uh, the sclerotic campaign uh, institutions in both parties have received a, a well-deserved drubbing. So we will see if uh, the parties rapidly go back to trying to win elections in 1992 or if they realize it's the 21st century and we got new stuff going on we've got you know uh people in the in the uh, rio grande valley uh, mexicans in the rio grande valley voting republican which is not something that i would have thought ever happened in my life we've got suburbanites in atlanta voting democrat again something that i would probably not have predicted so it's a it's a new electoral map it's a new country we got new stuff going on and we got a president as i've mentioned before, not only is his middle name Robinette, he's from a state that technically doesn't exist. You can't, you can't get better than this as far as I'm concerned. So first takeaway is that by historical standards, this is a pretty impressive uh, win for a presidential race. He had a solid popular vote margin. He flipped uh, a couple of states. It looks like it will come out too with the final call. And uh, the great uh, mirage of flipping Texas is still in the demographic future, but uh, he got uh, Arizona and uh, Georgia, of all things. So uh, in big wave elections, which this turned out not to be, uh, there are often surprising state flips like Indiana going for Obama the first time around. But uh, Georgia and Arizona, those those aren't beanbag. Nope. As I believe I said at the time, if you spend four years making fun of John McCain, do not count on Arizona staying in your column and certainly don't predicate your electoral strategy on it. Uh, it is the biggest vote turnout since 1908 in terms of percentage of eligible voters. And 1908, of course, was artificially repressed by Jim Crow. But leaving that aside, a interesting question is, is this the new normal? Is this the only good thing to come out of the hyper partisanship driven by social media and other algorithms? Or is this a one-off thanks to the pandemic having forced Americans to watch TV news uh, instead of go out to bars like they wanted to. Right. And also every year, both sides say that they're, that the results are existential. Um, but this time, that argument really hit home to people on both sides. So there was both a red turnout wave and a blue turnout wave. And that, in part, is uh, responsible for the uh, mixed result. Also, if you peel off a number of Republicans who care about technocratic competence by arguing that the uh, incumbent president is uh, just not up to the job. Uh, you can uh, not be surprised when those voters split their tickets and also vote for uh, Republicans down ballot. But this brings us to, I think, the, one of the other big takeaways is the giant polling failure. That yeah. uh, Now, it was gianter in some places uh, than in others. And it was certainly, you know, within the, uh, definitely within the bounds of the 538 model. But there were a lot yeah. of places that were, uh, way off and in a way that suggests that the best pollsters are basically looking at a black box as far as opinion is concerned and that they're just their ability to model the uh, makeup of the population who's going to show up to uh, to vote has failed uh, even worse this time than it did in 2016 which turns almost every poll result uh, into question because if they if they lack the ability to even sort of do basic weighting, uh, if there are portions of the demographic who are uh, finding ways to overrepresent themselves in poll samples or who are dropping out from polling altogether, that makes every assumption of what's happening uh, in every election and on every response to issues doubtful. And there's a certain point at which the ability to practice politics breaks down if you can't tell 
what the hell people want and will respond to. I mean, there's certainly the modern ability to do it. We may be forced to go back to the 19th century way of doing it in which you log roll and hope for the best. And uh, on the merits, not sure which one is the one we like. Um, the Senate polls were the worst of the batch. The House polls actually were catching up at the end in the three weeks that the Republicans spent making up for lost territory. I think you can look at the real clear politics average of polls in the House races and say, eh, not terrible. Um, the uh, Senate polls were a ludicrous uh, disaster up and down the board. Uh, Susan Collins, of course, never led in any poll. Her average number of points uh, behind was something like eight or ten. And, of course, she won by, I think, uh, six or eight. So you can't poll Maine, whatever else you can do. There was a graphic that said that if you merely applied the 2016 polling error to the polls now, you got basically the map that resulted with Florida being called wrong, called for Biden rather than for Trump, which is maybe down to Miami-Dade having flipped polarity uh, and not just the, the the Cubans, the whole city moved towards the Republicans, which was a thing no one saw coming again. And so the, the poll errors that they all thought they'd fixed in 2016, either they made exactly poll errors of basically the same magnitude with a little uh, bit more to spare in, in Florida and Maine, or they didn't actually fix them. And we are still in a in a world where pollsters haven't caught up to cell phones and to hyperpolarization and to people believing that pollsters uh, play for one side or the other as opposed to being neutral. And so once that uh, perception sets in, if one side doesn't pick up or makes up answers to pollsters, then you are uh, staring into the uh, cephalogical abyss. And I think that the job of of good pollsters uh, is going to be to to go forward and in cases like, you know, your, your mainstream polling houses, try and regain that trust. And in the case of uh, more narrow cast, uh, you know, partisan polls to really, really amp up your model and to be very, very sure that you're polling what's actually going on on the ground, not what you think ought to be going on on the ground. And some partisan pollsters are better and some partisan pollsters are worse. And I'm not going to name names or pick sides mostly because I only barely know what I'm talking about, but I know who I ignore right out of the bat. And so I think maybe other pollsters should think, why are we all ignoring uh, PPP right out of the bat? What's, what's, what are we, what are we doing that they're still doing and, uh, and, and fix that? Because like you say, it's a crisis for how we have been governed. Um, again, I don't think that you could make a pragmatic case that FDR was crippled by the lack of scientific polling. I, th I think you could maybe make a case the other way that polling is, has led to the sort of refusal to govern that is, uh, hampered Congress basically since, oh, that's right, the rise of modern scientific polling. Goodness. Right. It, it's a problem, particularly for internal discussions within a party, right? Because you know generally where you want to land, but exactly how far you want to pitch toward, uh, say, the centrist side of the Democratic Party or the progressive side. Uh, is dependent on being able to argue what people will pick uh, when that is uh, put in front of them. And I, I think my guess is that a couple of things are happening here to where the respondents are, there's a distortion effect. So for example, all of the crosstabs in the polls coming in were suggesting a giant gender gap, which did not materialize. Right. And uh, this makes me think that technocratically inclined uh, Republicans uh, who are turning into blue dog Democrats, basically, who care about good administration and uh, particularly in the national security realm, were probably going to be very vocal and want to tell pollsters about that and were disproportionately more likely. Uh, and I think probably uh, women among that category were, uh, uh, I'm guessing, more likely to want to uh, express themselves by taking the trouble to stop and talk to a pollster. Uh, and so that that group, which on paper was Republican, uh, wound up overrepresented in, in the polling results. And also the fact that the doctrine of the president of uh, one of the parties is that all news is fake and all the polls are fake. Uh, if you are uh, a conspiracy theorist president and are telling people to distrust uh, institutions that aren't you, it seems to me that there would be a lot of his supporters who wouldn't bother to take the time and don't have that sense of civic engagement or sense that it is worth it, they think, oh, the enemy is calling, so that they're uh, not responding and were not reflected in the polls. And it turns out that according to the exit polls, which have all the problems of regular polls squared and cubed and wearing a hat, 
uh, white men were the only group to move towards Biden, whereas other groups moved uh, against their previous, in many cases, uh, very, very low base towards Trump. Uh, that indicates that the pollsters were really getting that uh, that gender gap situation uh, cross-wired uh, just because picking up movement within demographics is another way that you sort of forestall uh, being horrendously surprised. Right. And and all of those demographic moves are within a couple of points. So rife fodder for over-interpretation. Yes. I mean, depending on how, how far down you, you parse it, obviously, Mexican-Americans in Texas moved by like 40 points, but that's maybe specific conditions on the ground, not a general, um, uh, they, they enjoyed the, the, the catchy, uh, Latinos for Trump song type of situation. And, and there's the suggestion that they were looking for an economic message and that, uh, uh, people who got stimulus checks with Trump's name on them, that, that has worked in politics for forever. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, crazy black box. We don't know what uh, people are actually thinking because the, uh, the system of figuring out, uh, what that is, but uh, on the broad macro scale, I think more than ever, we are continuing to see that density is destiny, that like most countries forever, uh, the United States has a town versus country split, uh, which for um, many uh, decades in what is seen as the golden era of bipartisanship were not fully sorted by party. Uh, now they are. There's a, a city party and a, and a country party, and then you layer America's uh, history with the legacy of slavery on top of that, and it becomes... Uh, you know, an extra sticky thing. But essentially, if, if you were to predict the uh, election based on population density, uh, with the uh, suburbs starting to go blue, and uh, you, you would have done better than, than most people uh, placing bets. And so uh, you have the, you know, to, to get back to Texas, someday, those three big cities in Texas are going to get big enough, and it's going to turn Texas blue. It's never quite as soon as the Democrats want. But uh, when that happens, uh, they're going to really start to like the Electoral College. Although, again, the uh, Trump vote in cities went up. Trump improved his votes in Detroit, uh, doubled his percentage there, doubled his percentage, I think, in uh, Houston, did very, very well in Philadelphia compared to last time. I think he stayed about level in, in Pittsburgh. But in many, many cities, the actual inner cities, uh, not inner cities, the, the, the city boundaries, the Trump vote increase between 2016 and 2020. And the question is, to what extent is this unique to uh, having a game show host as president? And to what degree is this people in cities beginning to resort themselves economically? Uh, there is the pattern that, you know, immigrants in the United States uh, show up and they generally vote uh, Democrat as it happens. And then they slowly vote Republican. And the question is, are trends within uh, cities accelerating that? Did trends hold that back and now they're restarting? Uh, what's going on? So, you know, the urban cores are not the, the the silver bullet that the Democrats thought they were forever. I mean, they certainly could be. The Republicans could punt that away. The only political party worse than Republicans at closing a deal is the Democrats, uh, which I guess we have that, you know, to, to thank. But it's still, you know, um, we got rid of the Lincoln Project, but there's plenty of almost Lincoln of, of Andrew Johnson projects out there uh, waiting to screw us. So we'll see what happens. And uh, what happens going forward uh, when when Biden finally takes the oath is he's, I think, in a pretty good uh, position because the the vaccines are, uh, if anything, going to be available sooner than we thought. So if he manages to draw on his good government chops to successfully roll out vaccine delivery, which is going to be complicated everywhere and very complicated in America because it is a very complicated country, and then uh, is in office when the demand drought uh, dries up and people are able to go out again and do things. Uh, he's well positioned to see uh, an economic upturn and uh, people yeah, think it'll, be, it'll be like the bicentennial bump that carried Gerald Ford into, you know, almost competition, you know, very, very squeaker competition with Jimmy Carter. Uh, in 1976, Everything looked dire and horrible, and they figured that Ford was a dead man walking. And then we had the Bicentennial, and everyone thought, you know what? Everything's pretty great. We're outside. It's terrific. And uh, we're going to have that uh, after, you know, this spring, summer, assuming, as you say, that uh, the bumps in the road to vaccine delivery are, are smoothed out. Uh, I think we're going to have a gigantic era of good feelings that 
uh, Biden is certainly capable of uh, of connecting with and uh, building on because he is iffy electoral performance in previous presidential runs, notwithstanding a pretty good retail politician and a pretty good gauge of where the people are thinking and happening to be right there, like in an ice cream cone with them. Yeah. Imagine what can happen when you can actually shake people's hands again. Yep. Big, um, well, big changes. Yeah. On that, on that happy note, uh, let's uh, have a commercial and then talk about something horrible. The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. The podcast is threatened in the first act. In the conclusion, you save it by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Craig Maloney, Brian Thomas, Bill Sirwan, Alan Wilkins, and Dave Stecco. The mysterious Dutch angles, the whispers echoing through acoustically perfect corners, the suspicious glances at everyone you see have pulled you into the conspiracy corner. And here in the conspiracy corner, we're going to talk about a conspiracy that was from the news and is in the news and maybe is going away because like the Millerites, they've foolishly tied all of their uh, conspiracy goats to a peg. And that conspiracy are those fun-loving goofs at QAnon. Right. And and by fun-loving goofs, of course, we mean vile anti-Semites. Yes, we mean so, uh, let's, dangerous loser let's maniacs. spoiler that. Right, yeah. Never has there been a better example of your uh, dictum that uh, every conspiracy, if you go far enough down its rabbit hole, turns into anti-Semitism. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, this uh, Antonio LaMotta character who uh, showed up with a, a crony... Uh, and some guns and a whole bunch of fake ballots to Philadelphia to do something turns out to be a comics artist. And he does these awful uh, visually and content wise, awful vile comics, which is straight up blood libel. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that I guess is sort of the, to the extent that this is interesting and, and not horrible. It's, it's not good. Interesting. Uh, but I think it's instructive that the thing about QAnon is it's sort of a, a cap system conspiracy uh, if you will, where it sort of draws in elements from every, uh, from many different conspiracies in order to have this sort of toxic appealing brew. And, uh, one of them, of course, is the medieval blood libel against Jews, except now it's, uh, uh, Hollywood and, and, uh, Democrats, the deep state killing and eating children, uh, which of course is a, uh, whoever flunked this up and we still don't know who it is because they're, that's the Anon and QAnon. You know, I think you can tell that they were uh, quite the student of conspirology and uh, and pulled out the big gun to sit at its center. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the question is, was it designed or did it grow to, to some degree? Uh, Q, the, the anonymous figure who launched all of this fun in 2017, it, it sprung so full blownedly from Q's uh, keyboard that it sounds like it was designed. But, uh, you know, no designer works in a vacuum and the decision to sort of, what do I want to say, modernize, upsell the, the blood libel by in, instead of making it, you know, initially about Jews, but, you know, wink, wink, 
by making it about uh, the Clintons and other high-level Democrats, Barack Obama and Hollywood, is kind of, you know, when you look at it just architecturally, A, inevitable that this kind of thing would happen, and B, uh, smart marketing coming as it did on the heels of the Epstein and uh, Me Too revelations and the general susurrus of thought that there's more going on than just uh, Harvey Weinstein, and especially with uh, child actors, that that's always been sort of a, a place where mainstream America looks with questioning eyes. Uh, and so taking the, 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 the very, very powerful meme of the blood libel and slightly detouring it into this is, um, a, a piece of, of, if any, if nothing else, uh, structurally, it was very clever and it did blow up on the internet. It started out on 4chan, uh, which is one of the chans, as far as I know, and, uh, then spread to 8chan. The twice as bad chan. That's twice, that's twice as chan, really. And then, um, has, of course, blown up on all of the other social medias. There was a zillion uh, QAnon pages on Facebook for a while, and Facebook sort of cleared off some of them. There was a bunch on, on Twitter, and Twitter cleared some of them off. But, uh, it is very, very difficult to extirpate a conspiracy theory. Uh, as I said, maybe they have sown their own uh, reckoning by, by tying their, their mythology to the figure of Donald Trump, who, despite being, as far as anyone can tell, a active part of both the Epstein circle and Hollywood, is somehow a secret warrior working to arrest all the bad guys in a uh, mythical event called the Storm, um, and then he's going to send them all to Gitmo or something. I'm not sure what's going to happen. He's, he's going to execute him. He's, yeah, well, there you go. But that's, uh, we've only got a very little amount of time for, for their, the, the storm to, to come true. Unless Q, I mean, Q is right now, no doubt, you know, figuring out how he's going to handle this situation. But, uh, it does look like it's going to run into a, the aliens did not come as we promised rock. It's definitely a when prophecy fails situation. Moment, yeah. And, and I think the, the mythic power of that has made it grow to the extent it has, and we'll get to the how big is it question in a sec, is the mythic incongruity of Trump. That part of Trump activates the worshipfulness of people who want a leader to uh, not just you know deliver the tax policies they want, but someone they want to venerate, someone larger than life. And all of those figures, or at least most of them, have this sort of core... Uh, demagogues have a core of insecurity in them that enables them to sort of hook into the insecurities of others and sort of cause that act of projection to occur. But Trump is such an obvious goofball <laughs> that, you know, his yeah. balance on that is out of whack. And uh, you saw that in the late stages of the campaign where, you know, instead of hitting the economic message, he decided what people really care about is water pressure. And his own stupid grievances that make him look weak and his inability to resist attack. And so the reality of Trump has to be written away by this myth, which means it's all a put on. It's all him. He's sly like a fox. He's actually going to, you know, uh, be the true strong man we want and uh, satisfy our fantasies of having Tom Hanks murdered. And so it's to make him into uh, the mythic figure that the that the real Trump is, you know, Four Seasons landscaping as an example of that. Uh, the, the, the real Trump and his circle are always much shabbier than someone who wants to mythically worship them are. And I think that's right. Um, the, the and, and, we had a, and we had a similar dynamic working with the unfounded, as Miller demonstrated, belief that we couldn't have elected this goof. It must have been foisted upon us by overseas manipulators. And there was a vaster conspiracy theory uh, of uh, Trump playing nine-dimensional chess to turn the country over to Putin. And in fact, Trump was just a big, stupid game show host. Uh, that's what he was in 2016. And you have to sort of cognitively put that into your universe of why did that happen? And and so the, the conspiratorial reaction happened regardless of what you thought of, of, of the, as you say, the tax policies or whatever else. It happened kind of, as you say, because this mythic celebrity sized figure suddenly was moved from his comfortable basic cable game show slot into the oval office. And you have to sort of parse that incongruity somehow. Right. And of course it's not that he wasn't seeking foreign help or possibly didn't get it. It's just that, that because of course that was what the whole Ukraine thing was and he did it 
in his typically blundering, obvious fashion. But the question of whether uh, it was a skillfully exercised global conspiracy or just uh, a giant screw up on the part of a whole bunch of colliding forces is, uh, you know, people want the world to be, uh, it, it, it is more upsetting uh, to think that the world is uh, chaotic and nonsensical than that it secretly makes sense, which of course is the emotional impetus behind believing any conspiracy theory. And the thing about this particular version, which if it dies, will mutate into something else. People who are fringe uh, characters on the verge of violence will find something else to fixate on. But uh, this one seems to have been more than usually potent in drawing people in. And this is sort of a postmodern phenomenon in that it is part psyop and part a long distance cult, where instead of people going off to a, a cult compound and being recruited on the street, that you're uh, recruited into this thought control system uh, by reading posts on the internet. And there's all sorts of uh, people who are in huge distress because their older family members in particular have latched onto this thing and uh, become obsessively focused on it. And that's, uh, you know, at least there's nowhere you need to kidnap them out of and put them in a hotel room. But how to get your mom back after she's gone down the QAnon uh, rabbit hole is something that uh, a bunch of people are apparently grappling with. Yeah. And then the same thing, of course, is true of all manner of, uh, of conspiracy beliefs that, that, that blow up out of nowhere and take a hold of people. And they either have to find something else to believe, or they have to, you know, have a disproof moment, which happens for, you know, a non-trivial uh, number of, of conspiracy fans. And then the other thing that helps something like this go away is, lack of oxygen from the outside world. And that, of course, is why uh, when this uh, bizarre, hateful fringe conspiracy happened, uh, the media spent two months blowing it up and turning it into a moral panic. And weirdly, of course, it we have a moral panic about a moral panic now, because at the at the base, QAnon is a response to, uh, again, things like the Epstein revelations and things like the Me Too revelations about the, the the sewer that is Hollywood. And, and, and it has so, a lot of the DNA of the classic moral panic of the latter half of the century, which is the satanic panic. Right, exactly. The satanic panic is just brought right in there. And uh, in a poll in uh, August uh, 2020, uh, there was a 7% favorable. 7% of people said their favorable opinion of QAnon. Only 39% had ever heard of it. Uh, a Tufts poll did the very interesting thing, got the same numbers, basically, but of the 7% favorable, only 38% of those had actually heard what QAnon was, had heard the, the core QAnon tenet of uh, a paid of pedophile Satanist cult of Democrats and Hollywood uh, figures, which makes the actual number that uh, you could argue are favorable to QAnon closer to 2.6%. And then uh, we had two months of uh, QAnon being broadcast from every cable uh, pundit in the land. And so in a October poll, uh, we have 7% very favorable, 9% somewhat favorable. So its numbers doubled thanks to MSNBC. Uh, and that number was divided uh, two to one between Republicans and Democrats. So there are somewhere people who marched out and pulled the lever for the Satanist pedophile cult, apparently, because uh, they were happy with it. I don't know. And, uh, the most favorable numbers. <laughs> they lived numbers. in the right neighborhood. Yeah, that's right. It was it was a good... The QAnon had a great door-to-door -door messaging. No. Uh, the most favorable percentages, uh, that's 35% total favorable, uh, were amongst government employees, who you would think would not be in favor of something that accuses them of hiding a, a, a pedophile cult, and postgraduate degree holders, which, quite frankly, I, I, I find totally unsurprising. There is right, because nothing so gullible as someone with a graduate degree. Yeah, people who think that they have high psychic defenses against cult recruitment are the sweet spot for cult recruiters. And yeah. it's, it's not surprising that that would be reflected uh, here. Now, obviously, that doesn't measure the number of people who are actually hardcore members of this fringe group, but as fringe groups go, right, a, a psyop that achieves this level of moral panic is a hell of a successful psyop. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can mimetically it's, it's, um, uh, it's something to watch or something to look at. And, and unlike, uh, the LaRoucheites or the unification church, they've now got 
two members of Congress who are avowed, uh, you know, not, not just covert, not just, you know, signaling off in the corner, but proud, overt uh, QAnon conspiracy people. So, although becoming uh, one of them at least is becoming less proud as they're asked about it constantly. And then they're saying, well, lots of things. And then the other, the other one is still, you know, waving that Q flag. So yeah, there you go. But again, you, we've had actual communists in Congress before. So these things happen. Uh, a nation of 330 million people that have been through a lot is going to throw up the occasional weird piece of driftwood. And, and by the way, the, the engagement number seems to be in that morning consult poll about 10 to 11% of the respondents had engaged positively on a QAnon message board was the, the way that they asked if you've done anything about it. So well, that's uh, assuming the polls are real. <laughs> see <laughs> Which, previous segment. See Although previous in discussion. this case, right, I would expect polls to downplay people's QAnon affiliation because you would think that very conspiratorially minded people would not be responding to polls. That ain't a great number. No, that's, uh, no, it's not troubling. And that's why we haven't been talking about it a lot. And that's why I haven't been making the obvious parallels between it and the action of the repair of reputations and the yellow sign is because it's, uh, it's real and creepy and bad. And, uh, it is definitely in our wheelhouse, uh, which is why we're talking about it now, but it's, uh, awful and nasty. And I certainly hope it goes away. And that's why we haven't talked about it until now. And, uh, on that note, uh, let's go and talk about something that's weird and, uh, maybe fun and good. Let's go to a different Chan. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. Uh, there at the top of the uh, landing is the painting of the mystical king Salamander, and he gives us a little wink. Uh, he's much friendlier than the last occupant of that portrait space. And we head on in, and there waiting for us is the consulting occultist. But wait a minute. He's got Peter Frampton coming alive, and he's got the clunk of uh, miniatures and the rattle of dice because uh, beloved Patreon backer Wade the Music Rocket, uh, Ken, has this request for us. I would like to hear Ken and Robin talk about James Herbert Herbie Brennan, a cult practitioner, children's book author, and tabletop RPG designer, and how a GM might use him as a resource antagonist or ally in various gumshoe games. So, Ken, this, I think, is their first time doing a consulting occultist segment on someone who this might get back to. Yeah, um, uh, not least because he's still alive. He's still with us. He's uh, 80 years young. And uh, still writing, still working. He's not, uh, I, I checked his blog while doing the research for the segment, and the last entry was in 2019. But, you know, I haven't felt like updating sometimes in 2020, so hopefully he's still keeping it real, or keeping it real, you know, for James Herbert Brennan values of real, which I guess we'll get to. But certainly, the last person we're going to hate on is a, a game designer with an occult streak. That's like the opposite of people we hate on. We love those people. So J.H. Brennan, if anything in this segment uh, seems unkind, know that it comes from a place of love and uh, selling tickets, which I think is something that J.H. Brennan is also very fond of. So right. there we are. So his RPG is Man, Myth, and Magic. And Time Ship, Robin. And Time Ship. Man, Myth, and Magic was an early, uh, so it's a second wave design, uh, heavily based on randomization, 
uh, to the extent that your character is entirely randomly determined, including which ancient culture they belong to. And on one level, uh, you know, pioneers a thing up the alley of a certain young Ken Height, which is taking real history and nerd troping it. So it has, for its time, had much more of a historical bent in it, but there was still like dinosaurs and Roman stuff because because fun because yeah right because it, it was a game um yeah you could be a you could uh, be a leprechaun uh, at character creation that's fun stuff um the adventures were in theory sort of a gallimaufry of things set between uh 4000 BC and 1000 AD so you might be a viking or a a, a, a siberian shaman or a roman soldier or just any kind of a stuff. Uh, you probably were a merchant since it turns out the tables were um, uh, about 25% likely to make you a merchant. Um, but again, random character generation was, was all the rave at the time. The actual mechanics of the game, I think could be described as iffy. I don't know that they were even pretty good for purpose and time ship introduced another bunch of, uh, I mean, he didn't rest on his laurels. Time ship wasn't, even more recondite and a weird system. Not least that the uh, rule book was written in voice as uh, the translation of a Sumerian text found in a wall and uh, passed down by an occult brotherhood. And so the notion that the Sumerian text was also a role-playing game. It was, uh, uh, I've seen people say with a straight face that it is intended to sort of cross the streams a little bit between his occult side and act as a way to do guided meditation, uh, that, uh, you're, you're, you're doing path working when you play time shift. I don't know that I believe that, but I certainly believe that someone who paid a lot of attention to path working and recognized that role playing was its own kind of ritual space might want to bleed it one way or the other into right. it. But in and, and Sumerian jam screams were, were notoriously heavy. And hard to ship. Yes. Well, in, in this case, the Sumerian GM screen has rules that are not in the book. That's the Gnostic well, level. I would not put that past a Sumerian tablet at all. Right. No, that, that's the Gnostic level that time ship operates at. But, and again, there's a zillion billion random rolls. Uh, there, you can roll for your personal energy and just roll until you're tired is, is one of the rules. Uh, because he's like, this is a very important die roll. What if you get a bad one? Oh, they'll just re-roll. An interesting choice, but there we are. And that had, uh, obviously, time adventures, so you could go kill Hitler, uh, you could go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, I, f- I forget what the third adventure was, but it was uh, something uh, equally fun, I'm sure. Uh, so it was a time travel game with a difference, and I'm not sure that it was... Oh, and it was also one of those games where you played yourself. So... Uh, for non-combat uh, things. Playing yourself, going back into history and changing things with a time machine? Nonsense. Yep. It will never catch on. Nonsense. That's that's a that's a crazy topic, Robin. But uh, anyway, I had a, a very fond uh, spot in my heart for Time Ship way back in the day. I, I probably bought it uh, in 1983 or 4 when it came out. Um, I have no idea where my copy of Time Ship is. Maybe it's lost forever maybe it's up in my game closet i did not try to dig it out i apologize for that but there we are um because there's more to jh brennan than his game design there is as we've alluded to and the as the glowering portrait uh reminds us his occult side which is that of a very successful author not only of choose your own adventure books but also of occult books going all the way back to his first work and the topic astral doorways, which is about astral projection. And that goes back to 1971. And apparently it's still in print somewhere. Right. So he is not a, an RPG designer who uh, then uh, got into the occult, but rather a paranormal author who knocked off a few RPGs along the way. Exactly. He's written, it looks like maybe 20 or 30 uh, occult books uh, in the generalized popular occultist sort of uh, feeling, although there's some of them are also workshops. So there's the reincarnation workbook uh, on how to make your past lives uh, show up. Uh, that's another a thing that happened in Man, Myth, and Magic is when you died, you were just reincarnated. So that's good fun. Apparently, as an adult, don't ask me. He had a book called The Occult Reich, which I think is the only Brennan book that I owned up until uh, recently when we had a discussion, you and me, and I picked up Whispers, the Secret History of the Spirit World, which came out in 2014, and is just what it says on the tin, a fun run through 
all of history, finding everyone who ever said they talked to a ghost or were inspired by uh, something like Socrates' daemon, any sort of discarnate personality, give them advice, uh, Joan of Arc, uh, hearing the voices of, of God telling her to fight the hated British, all of your uh, ghost whisperers and ghost talkers down to the present, and uh, Brennan saying, given all of these cases, why does no one care what the ghosts actually want? That seems to be a, a lacuna, a hole in the research material. And it's actually, uh, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily something that I would have bought absent that conversation, but it is full of good ghost stories, not ghost stories, stories about people who've met ghosts. And also, uh, it raises a, a, a fun philosophical question without trying to answer it in a restraining and uncreative way. So I appreciate it on that level. Um, again, the writing is, is perfectly sound. The guy's been doing it for, you know, 50 years now. So he's got a, a, a sort of a, a, a rapid uh, clip of a style. If, if you're a Brad Steiger fan, this is sort of that same space, a little more rigorous than Brad Steiger, but that's a low bar. So yeah, um, maybe look at a J.H. Brennan book. I didn't think that the occult Reich was, was all that in a bag of chips, but it, again, it, it's a primer. It's, it's a useful, you know, I want to know about this thing. Let's find out about this thing. So uh, the next part of the question then is uh, how to put him or a fictionalized version uh, thereof uh, into games and particularly in gumshoe games. And uh, the obvious thing to do with any respected uh, author of the occult is that they uh, have some stuff in their notes that uh, they were uh, reluctant to publish in the actual book or were working on in a current book. And you're uh, are led to them and, uh, uh, win this person over, win their trust, and uh, get the uh, info from them. Uh, I think it's uh, unkind to clearly base uh, something on a living person and then have, have the monster eat them. Uh, you might want to, you know, set up a thing where you save uh, a uh, key second uh, wave uh, RPG designer from from the monster, but you don't want that monster to eat them. That's you know, that's that's not why we RPG designers invent monsters in order to be eaten by them. That's just not how no, that works. The opposite. And, and likewise, you don't want to make him the, 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 the smiling false front on a dark and evil sect. So you don't want him to be working for the bad discarnate ghosts and trying to uh, get people into playing with Ouija boards and falling under the, the, the fell sway of the clipotic entities on the other side of the curtain. Um, you would much rather him be a, uh, Either, as you say, he's a guy who stumbled on a dark secret and knows not to reveal it, or he stumbled on a secret by accident, and he's being persecuted by those dark forces who want the secret from him. They want the MacGuffin. They want his Sumerian role-playing text, uh, because it's not actually role-playing text. It's actually a method for pathworking and sending your consciousness through time like the great race of Yith. And that's why the, the, the Migo or whoever it is want it. And so you're helping protect J.H. Brennan. Maybe he didn't know that that's what he had. But uh, he knows where he got it, and he knows about the mysterious uh, figures in buzzing figures in trench coats that have been asking him about it. And so he can provide you a wide variety of, of clues and leads while you keep a genial 80-year-old Irishman from being eaten by the Migo and or discarnate spirits. And uh, this, of course, is where the opportunity for meta text comes up, because as we alluded to in the first segment, if you put a Sumerian role-playing game on the table in Act 1... In Act 2, if not in Act 3, the characters have to play the Sumerian role-playing game. And so uh, whether you're literally breaking out a man, myth, and magic and having people randomly roll uh, their characters and playing a session of that uh, game, which uh, doubtless uh, there is, there's a degree of cognitive dissonance that occurs when uh, today's players play any game from that era. And uh, I gather there's, there's um, perhaps a little bit more in this one. And so whenever you complain about the rules, you make a composure test. Right. Uh, because you're breaking with the, uh, the magical reality that allows you to use this role-playing game to go into the you're other throwing world. Throwing yourself off the magical path. Exactly. And so, uh, and it Become may be that... Vulnerable to discarnate spirits. Yeah. And so if it randomly rolls up the fact that you are a uh, merchant from Ptolemaic Egypt... Not only do you do a bunch of those things as you're fighting dinosaurs in Rome uh, as part of a uh, existential mystery to find a clue or gain a power that uh, you can use when you come back from this polyhedral dreamland, uh, but maybe later uh, the Ptolemaic merchant will uh, show up in the real world and uh, and want something from you, and uh, 
that uh, might also be a, a source of distress. And uh, he also wrote a series of children's game books called Grail Quest. So if you are wanting to draw him into Grail discourse, uh, that's another uh, possibility is that suddenly you, the players, are in a choose-your-own-adventure, or one of you is in a choose-your-own-adventure, and the other players have to give advice as though they were discarnate spirits. Um, and, and that can be a way to, to, to play with the topic. If you're in Fall of Delta Green at the time of the 1960s, he is a editor, a newspaper editor in Ireland, uh, just beginning to be a writer. So you're meeting him when he is just a, uh, a, a, a curious journalist with an eye for the occult. Uh, and that's good fun in a, uh, Yellow King type scenario. Uh, I think that he, he slots most nicely into either a, a person whose books on pathworking uh, concealed anti-Carcosan uh, roats that the resistance in America used, that they went into the Grail Quest books and they got uh, the power to withstand the reality corrosion and brought it back out or, or something like that. Or you can have it in a, this is normal now, sort of a circumstance in which, unbeknownst to him, his uh, newest book about uh, a mysterious play in Paris that seems to have been at the nexus of a lot of occult doings has attracted more attention than he would like. And uh, you have uh, noticed the attention being attracted to this perfectly pleasant fellow in Ireland. Right. And when you look over the gaming table and see that the uh, GM screen is a Sumerian tablet and the GM is wearing a crown and has a strange pallid mask-like visage, it's time for us to flee at top speed from this episode. But we'll bravely be back a week from now with more of this sort of stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Astphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep the magic of this podcast from receding into myth, man, by joining such backers as... Jack Gulick. Michael Curtis. Scott Stefanski. Bill Durfee. And James Stewart. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design... The players are the Red Herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>